The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, when you were little, inevitably someone asked you, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And some of us are still trying to figure that out, aren't we? Uh, Well, our text today from Proverbs 6 sparks a related yet different Uh, Even more important question, who do you want to be when you grow up? And whether you're young or old, grown up or not, the question hits us today, what kind of person do you want to be? It's a character question, see? A a question of the type of person, who you are, that that transcends whatever it is that you do. And and from this text, we're going to see three kinds of persons to not be. There's three negative examples here that teach us positive wisdom. Here's the first one. We'll jump right in. Don't be naive. Don't be naive. We see this from the first section of our text, which spans verses one down through five, and there's a specific example given here, which we can also extrapolate into secondary application. The example, in particular, has to do with putting up security for your neighbor, giving your pledge for a stranger. Do you see it in verse one? He says, my son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger. So to, to put up security or surety, as other translations have it, it's like, it's like co-signing a loan in, in our modern day or co-signing a lease. You're, you're becoming the guarantor. Are you familiar with that term, the guarantor? Like it's on you, right, if this thing falls apart. And, and notice who you're doing it for here. Line one, your neighbor. But line two, a stranger. And in Hebrew poetry, line two here elaborates upon line one, meaning the way that we should understand this is someone who is maybe close to you and yet unknown. Don't co-sign their loan. Don't make a pledge offering to cover their debt if they cannot. It's not wise. Now listen, there's a lot of reasons you might do something like this. Maybe you are a very benevolent person, right? Um, You're generous. The Bible encourages generosity. It's a Christian virtue. But in fact, within the context of the Old Testament community of God's people, we see the law allow a creditor to take a pledge in order to secure himself for the repayment of debt. But here the wisdom is aimed at the other end of the deal. It's not the creditor in view here, but the guarantor. The one putting up the security to the creditor on behalf of the neighbor stranger. Don't do that, wisdom says. (laughs) And so a generous spirit might lead you down that path to do, to do that, but maybe you do it for another reason. Maybe, maybe you're somebody who believes in karma, or, or Seinfeld fans, even Steven, you know what I'm talking about, right? Maybe, maybe you're just, you know, you, you think you're going to pay it forward, or maybe you're desperate for a place to live, and you rush into a lease with strangers, or perhaps you're concerned with what that neighbor stranger might think of you if you say no to their request, or you're concerned what they will say, what they'll think if you say yes. And so you do it. You get into it. There's all kinds of reasons you might do this, but it's unwise, Proverbs says. Why? Well, because you're making a promise for the future that you can't control. You're putting yourself on the hook for something that is unwise to put yourself on the hook for because this person is a stranger. They're an unknown entity. It's therefore an unknown risk. Meaning, to to use Jesus' language from the New Testament, it's impossible, really, to count the cost. If this person defaults, 
If they can't make good on the loan that you've stamped your name on. Now, now you've handed yourself over to the creditor who presumably, from this text, you don't know either, who may show you no mercy whatsoever. You could bankrupt yourself. You, you could bankrupt your family. You could cause all kinds of financial hardship for yourself and others that you are responsible for. It's foolish. It's folly. It's naive. It lacks wisdom. It lacks judgment and experience. So don't be naive, Proverbs says. If you're naive in this way, you're ensnaring yourself with your pledge, with your words. You're caught in the words of your mouth, verse 2 says. (laughs) Now, I love that this is in the Bible. Right now you're thinking, why is this in the Bible? I love that this is in the Bible. Do you know why? (laughs) Have you ever done anything stupid? You know, not sinful, but stupid, foolish. There's a difference, this text tells us. But it's not sinful to put up security for your neighbor, but it's foolish. It's, It's a mistake to put up security for your stranger neighbor, right? Remember, we're not reading law here. We're reading wisdom literature. This isn't wise. Now, one of my pastor mentors when I was first getting into ministry was a guy named John Ryan down in, in St. Louis. And one of the things that John instilled in me was that there is a difference between sins and mistakes. Some things are sins. It's clear in Scripture. You do something you're not supposed to do. You don't do something you're supposed to do. It's sin. I've sinned. You've sinned. We've sinned against each other. It's clear. But then there's also another category. Mistakes. Foolishness. Not long after I moved back to Lincoln from St. Louis to start Two Pillars, uh, my, my friend John had to fire his worship pastor. And um, there were reasons important ones, legitimate ones, valid ones, but, but also this guy and John were very close friends. Their families were very close friends. And it just became a, a huge mess. And I, I remember talking to John a couple years after all this happened, and, and, and what John told me, he said, you know, I don't think I sinned against him when I did this. I, I, I had to do it. Like, there were some specific reasons and, and all that. It had to be done. I know it had to be done. But I made a lot of mistakes, he said. <laughs> Can you relate with that? You've done something. You've made a decision. You've put yourself into a situation. You really didn't sin in any particular way, but it was a mistake. The Bible has a category for that. Proverbs calls it foolishness or naivety. And so listen, if, if you've ever gone to a party and you get there and you realize, I should not be here. If you've ever left a party with someone and then realized, I should not have left with this person. If you've ever gotten into that car, right? If, if you've ever gotten into a business deal that you shouldn't have, taken a job that you shouldn't have, invested money into something that promised all this payoff, but now it's going on and on and you realize, I shouldn't have. If you've ever overcommitted yourself, written a, a check with your mouth that your calendar can't cash, if you've ever said something, maybe it wasn't sinful, okay, but it needed to be said, but how you said it, when you said it, and now you're snared, caught in the words of your mouth. It could be a million different things, couldn't it? 
and you haven't sinned, but you've made some mistakes. You've acted naively. You realize it now. What should you do? Hmm? That's actually what this section of Proverbs 6 is here for. In fact, interestingly and uniquely, as we've been working through the book of Proverbs, what's absent from the first five verses of Proverbs chapter 6 is any exhortation to be wise or to get wise. Remember, we've seen that over and over, but not here. Instead, the opening part of Proverbs chapter 6 tells us what to do if you haven't been wise. (laughs) These verses are telling us, if you've done this, Do you see the ifs in verses 1 and 2? If you've put up security for your neighbor, stranger. If you've acted naively, made a foolish mistake, gotten yourself into a bind or a snare. Verse 3, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter. Like a bird... From the hand of the fowler. Now, the word hasten in the third line of verse three, um, the ESV footnote tells us it can also be translated humble yourself. You might have that at the bottom of your page too. The idea of the Hebrew word is really, it's really both. Go, humble, you know, hasten to humble yourself. Go, do it quickly. Do it quickly and get low. Plead urgently. Don't waste any time. Don't go to sleep on it. Don't wait till tomorrow. Get it done. Do whatever it takes to get out of the snare, out of the deal, out of the car, out of the party, as soon as possible. It doesn't say you need to confess. You haven't sinned in this particular scenario. We're not talking about repentance in the way we normally talk about that word again with respect to sin. But turn and Get the heck out of there. Listen, it might be embarrassing. That's the humble yourself part. You you, you might have to say, I'm so sorry I got into this, but I I can't stay. I got to go. I got to get out of here. You might get teased. You might get ridiculed. You might be bullied. You You might hear, I told you so, threatened. Don't let that stop you, Proverbs is saying. Eat your humble pie, swallow it hard, and get out. Plead urgently, it says. That, that means, it means to pester. There's another translation that says pester. Pester. This is the one instance in life where it's okay to, to leave the voicemail about the text message, about the email that you sent. You know what I'm saying? It's the one time you're allowed to do that, I think. Pester him. Plead urgently and persistently. Get out of it. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Humble, plead, flee. This is what you do. And and through this negative example, we learn, (laughs) don't be naive. No one wants to go through all that, do we? That's why it's in here. It's here to make you wise so you don't get into a bind like this, but it's also here to tell you what to do if you do. In other words, don't be the kind of person marked by naivety, and if you do something naive, Be the kind of person who corrects it as soon as possible, whatever it takes. Who do you want to be? (laughs) Second kind of person not to be comes in the next section, uh, verses 6 through 11, and it can be summarized as this. Don't be lazy. Don't be lazy. The language here is sluggard in in the ESV. 
the Christian Standard Bible has uh, slacker, I think, or, or one of my favorites from the uh, New Living Translation, I looked up lazy bones, lazy bones, right? Don't be lazy, that's the point. And, and Proverbs, if you've read Proverbs, you know Proverbs has a lot to say about this topic. Uh, for example, Proverbs 10, verse 4 says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in the summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Chapter 10, verse 26, like vinegar to the teeth. Ew. And smoke to the eyes. Ouch. So is the slugger to those who send him. Chapter 20, verse 4, the slugger does not plow in the autumn, and therefore he will seek at harvest and have nothing. Or 26, 14, as a door turns on its hinges, so the slugger turns over in his bed. Or two verses later, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. The point, don't be a sluggard. Don't be lazy. In verses six through eight of our text address the sluggard saying, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Look, there's a lot that you can learn from ants, Solomon says. Almost 10 years ago, uh, NASA, okay, that's right, NASA, uh, sent eight groups of ants, that's right, ants, to the International Space Station, okay, and, and just to study how they would react, how they would search out an area collectively and, and, and adapt to changing conditions. And the hope, the, the reason that they did this is they wanted to be able to apply what they learned to algorithms directing autonomous search and rescue missions, NASA knows, see? You can learn a lot from ants. But it's not just NASA that can learn from ants. Thousands of years prior to there even being an international space station, Solomon said the slugger can learn from the ant too. And more specifically, the slugger can learn how to be self-motivated. Verse 7, you see it there? And an ant doesn't need anyone to tell her what to do, see? The, they don't need external motivation or someone always standing over them reminding them what they're to do or what to do next. Ants are internally motivated, and you should be too. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, the ants go about their work. Look at the ant. Additionally, the sluggard can learn how to work hard, verse 8. She prepares her bread in summer. Now, there's ants all over my driveway. You know, they work hard out there in the heat. They don't seem to be bothered by it at all. They just go about their work, scurrying around under the hot sun, getting their work done. And they don't complain about it. I have never heard an ant complain. <laughs> never have. They don't procrastinate or put it off. They don't seem to need the anxiety pressure of a deadline to get something done. They work hard. Lastly, the slugger can learn to plan ahead. Ants, they, they gather food and harvest, it says. Ants prepare. They look out to the next season. They're not just laying around hoping things will work out for them. They're taking action for the future. They realize that what they do or don't do today not only affects today, but it affects tomorrow. In fact, have you ever seen an ant lie still? Unless they're dead, like I haven't. I've never seen an ant lie still. They're always, they're always on the move. We got ants right now in my kitchen, right? Once, about once every year, they show up, and 
I hate the things, you know, I got to go, I got to spray outside, get the little tarot traps inside, right? But there they are scurrying around, non-lazy like all over the kitchen counter, hunting for a little drop of ice cream that somebody left there, you know, that's what they do. We can learn a lot from ants. Like, don't be lazy. And verses 9 through 11 condemn, they, they chastise the lazy sluggard. Look at verse 9, it says, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber. And want or scarcity like an armed man. (laughs) Something to realize in the book of Proverbs is that in Proverbs, poverty, scarcity in the book of Proverbs, scarcity of food, not having enough, is almost always due to folly. In Proverbs, it's due to sloth, it's due to carelessness, it's due to idle talk, idle living. It's not due to natural disasters or things outside of your control. Now listen, the Bible's not silent on those instances either. That's why Job is in the Bible. Job addresses calamities that are not our own making. In fact, Job's friends actually make the mistake of ascribing poverty and suffering and scarcity to folly. Ascribing all poverty, all suffering to folly. They think all poverty is due to to folly or to sin. It's not. Some of it's out of our control. It's not of our own making. So a book like Job addresses calamities that are not our own making, but Proverbs addresses calamities that are our own making. Through our foolishness. There's a difference, and the Bible addresses the difference. But the, the Bible's clear in both. There are things that we do that create calamities of our own through foolishness, through sheer slackness or laziness. And we need to hear that. Proverbs tells us again through negative example don't be lazy. Now, when we think of a sluggard, um, we think about being lazy. Our Midwestern hardworking default is to think the, that the opposite of, of, you know, the sluggard is working like crazy, you know. Uh, workaholism is a real thing in Midwest culture. It's a real thing in the church. But just because the Bible condemns laziness does not mean it's automatically somehow pro-exhaustion. See, the opposite of laziness, and you see this in the rest, of the, the rest of the book, the opposite of laziness is not crazy busyness, it's diligence. And it's tempting in our own minds to, to create a, a, a caricature of a sluggard, convince ourselves, not me, right? But usually when we do that, we, we only focus in on one domain of our life. Typically one domain of our life where we're, we're doing pretty well and pretty active in. And we're able to sort of puff ourselves up with a little bit of self-righteousness as we judge the sluggards around us. But if you zoom out and assess, though, you think more comprehensively about all the domains of your life, like spiritual, intellectual, emotional, physical, marital, parental, social, vocational, avocational, financial. There's probably more. But those 10 domains create a fairly broad cover for us. So most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we can pinpoint at least one or two areas where we're slacking. Where we've become sluggish. A, a, a domain within which we're not very diligent. 
It might be your spiritual walk. Right? When you assess your walk with Jesus, if you're honest, you're lazy bones about it. <laughs> we can just, can we be honest? And sure, you might work hard and have a great career going for you. You're not lazy about vocation. You're not lazy about your finances, but you're a sluggard. I'm not talking about things that are outside of your control. I'm not talking about extenuating circumstances and heaping shame upon you. I know some of you have them. But Proverbs, what, what Proverbs wants to address is what is in your control. And it might just be that you're lazy in this domain of your life. Or you're, maybe you're killing it in the spiritual, right? But you're lazy in the physical. You're always out of shape. You don't know how to spell gym. Even if you look just fine, you know. You know you've been procrastinating your physical health, and it's going to catch up with you. Or you haven't tended your emotional life. Avocation, hobbies, you're doing great with that. Recreation, nailing it. But maybe emotionally, you're completely unregulated. You're a sluggard when it comes to emotional health. Or vice versa. What about parenting? What about marriage? about your social life, friendships, whatever domain it is, right? Proverbs says, look at the ants. Come over to my kitchen if you need to. They don't need anyone to tell them what to do. You probably don't either. You know what to do. You're just not doing it. That's a sluggard. You're not working hard in that area and you know it and it's going to catch up with you. Again, whether it's Financial or spiritual, emotional, parental, it's going to catch up with you. And so ask yourself, what kind of person do you want to be? Who do you want to be? Don't be lazy, Proverbs teaches us. It's almost uncomfortably practical and blunt, isn't it? (laughs) That's Proverbs. Proverbs is uncomfortably practical and lovingly blunt. Don't be naive. Don't be lazy. Last section, don't be wicked, verses 12 through 19. Now, in in some ways, this this feels different than the first two. I mean, naivety, laziness, look, we would all agree, those aren't good. Those are are not good things. Um, But they're not that bad, we think. And yet, remember what we learned two weeks ago. You're on a path. Life is a matter of choices, and every choice you make makes you. You're you're trompsing it, a path, one step at a time, one foot in front of the other. Day after day, you're becoming someone. Who do you want to be? My favorite commentator on Proverbs ties these three sections together in Proverbs 6 in this way. He says, the one who becomes security and the sluggard are not wicked, but in the naivety of the former and the sluggishness of the latter lie the beginning of that which all too easily can lead to the evil of the wicked. In other words, you're becoming someone. This is why Solomon is so urgent with his pleadings to get wisdom. Get it! He doesn't want you to be naive. He doesn't want you to be lazy. These two can lead down to the path of wickedness, worthlessness. Verse 12, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart. He devises evil. Perverted heart, there it is. The heart, the control center of who you are, it can become perverted, perverse. And and from that, the continual sowing of discord. Do you see that in the text? And the result, sudden calamity. Broken beyond healing. 
don't be wicked. And then we're told more about this wickedness business through six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Look at verse 17, haughty eyes, a lying tongue. The haughty eyes is pridefulness, that's arrogance. So haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. The word discord in verse 19 connects with the word discord up in verse 14. And this really is the kind of wickedness that is ultimately in focus here. See, anytime the, the Old Testament, anytime you're reading in the Old Testament and you read this number of things and then that number plus one, like here's six things the Lord hates, seven that are abomination, it's always the last item on the list that matters the most. It's a, it's a literary device in the Hebrew. You can think of it like a ladder. There's six rungs on this ladder. God hates them all. That's right. God hates some stuff. But the seventh is the climax. The biggest abomination, he he really hates this one. He hates it with a passion. In fact, the way to understand God's hatred for the other six rungs of the ladder is through the climax of the seventh rung. In other words, God hates haughty eyes He hates pride and arrogance precisely because it sows discord amongst the brothers. The reason he hates lying tongues is because it sows discord amongst his people. It's wicked. Sowing discord amongst God's people is wicked, the Bible says. And we do it when we're prideful. We do it when we're not fully honest with each other. We do it in all kinds of ways. It's wicked. And in the middle of verses 16 through 19, just like in the middle of verses 12 through 15, is the heart. Did you see it there? The command center. The command center of who you are. Remember Proverbs 4, verse 23? Everything you do flows from it. Now listen. Thankfully, Proverbs isn't the only book of the Bible we have. No, we, we have to, we get to read Proverbs in the broader context of the entire Bible, including the New Testament, including the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That is good news for naive, lazy, wicked people like you and me. See, Jesus came and lived and died for us while we were naive and lazy and wicked. And Jesus came and lived and died to free us from being naive and lazy and wicked. Look look at the seven abominations again. All seven of these are present in the passion narrative of Christ, are they not? Did you notice that? The haughty eyes of the Pharisees, too proud to recognize Jesus as the Christ. The lying tongue of Judas, hands that shed Jesus' innocent blood, hearts devising wicked plans, feet that made haste to run to evil, false witness. He took it all. Jesus took it all on, all the wickedness, all the hate, all the things that he hates so that there wouldn't be discord. And instead, he unites the people to himself. And because he took it all on, Jesus isn't looking at you and saying this morning, Jesus is not looking at you this morning and saying, stop it. 
Just stop it. Stop being wicked. (laughs) Listen, he took on all your wickedness. He died while you were wicked, and he died to free you from ever wanting to be wicked ever again. Or think back through the text to the sluggard. Think back through the text to to the ant, right? Jesus is the ultimate ant. (laughs) He's the truer and better ant. He was perfectly diligent in his death, wasn't he? Fastidiously effective and sufficient. Storing up righteousness for all who would trust in him. He has no need, like the earthly high priests of old, Hebrews 7 says, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified, Hebrews 10. He paid it all. He paid it all. And Jesus was not naive about it. He was greater, wiser than Solomon, and yet humbled himself, hastened and humbled himself and came for you. Jesus is the one who put forth the ultimate security, the ultimate surety for the debt that you could never repay. And he did it without any naivety. He knew exactly what he was getting into, and he did it anyway. So that you, though naive, through his surety, could become guaranteed. Who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? Someone trying not to be naive? Trying not to be lazy or wicked? Living in your wickedness as an abomination to the Lord, but trying to be a better person? Or someone who, despite your naivety, despite your laziness and even your wickedness, has been counted righteous before our Father in heaven because the finished work of Jesus Friends, that's what this table in front of us here is all about. At this table, we we realize and and we remember that Jesus came for us. While we were weak, yes, Romans 5 teaches us. While we were sinners, sure, yes. But also, he came for us while we were naive and lazy too. He came and lived and died for us. His body was broken. His blood was poured out. He was murdered and buried. But then, three days later, he rose. He rose to give us new life. He conquered the grave in order to give us new life. He didn't just die for us while we were naive, lazy, and wicked. He conquered the grave to free us from being naive, lazy, and wicked. Here's what that means for you. If you belong to Jesus... Here's what he's doing in you. He is taking your naivety and he is making you wise. He's doing it as we spend time in his word, digging deep in the book of Proverbs. He's also taking your propensities and your inclinations towards laziness in certain areas of your life and he's making you diligent. You got to put forth the effort, but he does too. He works and you work. We both work. His spirit empowers diligence. How? Well, listen, one of the ways that his spirit empowers diligence is by when we come to this table every week. One of the ways we understand the Lord's table is that it is a a means of grace. 
It's here that the Spirit actually empowers us, nourishes us, strengthens us, helps us. Helps us and nourishes us to live with the kind of diligence that he instructs us to. And then lastly, he's, he's taken your wickedness, Christian. He's taken all your sinfulness. He's already forgiven you for it. But now he's sanctifying you. Washing you. Preparing you to be presented before the Father in heaven without spot or blemish or wrinkle. And it might be slow work, but it's sure, sure work. He's not going to stop until, he done, until he's done when he returns. Listen, it's guaranteed. It's guaranteed. And that's what we realize and remember at this table every week. When we hear the familiar words of institution that on the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he lifted it up. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. In church, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and ask that you would consecrate these elements, this bread and this wine, and, and use them as a means of grace in our lives. That you would nourish us with wisdom, strengthen us with Holy Spirit-empowered diligence. Sanctify us, Lord, of any latent inclinations towards wickedness in us. Help us to, to realize and, and re-realize all Jesus is and all that he has done for us. Coming for us while we were naive and lazy and wicked and dying in our place for our wickedness. Dying for us despite our naivety and laziness, but also rising again to give us new life, new wisdom, new diligence to live a life glorifying to you and good for us and overflowing into the life of others. A life free from the bondage of sin and wickedness and empowered by a new heart that you give to us. Oh God, would you do all of that and so much more as we come to you at this table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.